0: Welcome to Food Farm Talk on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and on podcast wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Paul Smith. I'm one of the hosts of Food Farm Talk. Emily Duncan and Abdul Rahim Adulai are the others. Please follow the podcast and our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook feeds. Today we have the first of four episodes featuring the discussion of with business management guru Roger Martin about his thoughts about how ideas from his book when more is not better apply to agriculture. He gave this at the virtual Midwest Cover Crop Council conference on February 24th 2021. This is made available courtesy Soils of Guelph. This episode has Roger Martin in conversation with Mel Loomis.
1: Good evening. My name is John Cranfield. I'm a professor in the Department of Food, Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. And I'm also the Associate Dean for External Relations in the Ontario Agricultural College here at Guelph. It's my distinct pleasure to host you at tonight's event. Uh, We're here through the support of the OAC Class of 1959 Future Thinkers Fund. I want to bring my sincere thanks to that OAC Class of 59 for establishing this fund and supporting the uh, uh, and their support that allows us to host an event like tonight's conversation. This conference is fundamentally about caring for soil, the land. As the University of Guelph works towards peace and reconciliation between indigenous peoples and all who call this land home, we invite you to take a moment to consider the lands that we work and live on. The stories that have been made here, the children who have been raised here, the loved ones who have passed on from here. Land is precious and must be protected so that the future generations can share in the joy and the flourish of this land. So tonight I'm really pleased to introduce the first of our two speakers. Our moderator, Mel Loomis, is a freelance sociologist, a farm coach, and a writer. Her family runs a grain farm and custom farming business near Moorfield, Ontario, where they use precision cover crops, no-till, strip-till on their own fields. Co-founder of the Ontario Soil Network, Mel loves to work at the intersection of agriculture, behavioral change, and the environment. (laughs) Our keynote speaker, Roger Martin, is Professor Emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. He served as dean in the Rotman School from 1989 to 2013, and as institute director of the Martin Prosperity Institute from 2013 to 2019. In 2013, he was named the Global Dean of the Year, and in 2017, he was named the world's number one management thinker. He's published 11 books, including recently Creating Great Choices with Jennifer Rale, Getting Beyond Better with Sally Osborne, and Playing to Win with A.J. Laffley. The latter book won the uh, award for the best book of 20, 2012 2013 by 50 thinkers. Roger has written 28 Harvard Business Review articles and is a trusted strategic advisor to CEOs on many global companies, and originally hails from Wallenstein, Ontario, not far from here in Guelph. Welcome to you both, and we're looking forward to your conversation. Thank you for having me.
2: Thank you, John. And welcome, Roger. I, I just want to thank you for joining us this evening, and also thank you for writing this incredible book. Um, and I'm happy that it's it's gaining the recognition it has, um, not only for your career, but because this is just a really important topic, and it's different than other management books, not just about our own businesses and our own thinking, but really took a step back in looking at the bigger picture and the economy, and... Um, it's, I found it a really hopeful challenge. So thank you for that. Um, to start, you were uh, you were a, a country boy, like probably a lot of people um, on uh, watching tonight. Um, I, I know Wallenstein very well, and it is a very small town, uh, but- <laughs> You're um, one of
3: the few people in the world who know Wallenstein. I, well, well. I,
2: you'd be maybe surprised <laughs> on this call, but, um, and then from Wallenstein uh, to Elmira District Secondary School to Harvard, um, how, how did those small town roots? What did you take from that to the big city and on into your career?
3: Um, you know, I guess I, I think Mel that that coming from a small town, and, and as you probably uh, know, when when I was growing up, it was about fifty of us in Wallenstein. It's gigantic now. There's probably two hundred, maybe even two hundred and fifty in
0: Wallenstein,
3: <laughs> <Me>? but <coughs> huge. Um, but uh, um, I, th- I, I think I had a sense that you could uh, kind of get your arms around whatever situation or problem you were facing because because Wallenstein wasn't a complicated place uh, and so you could say mm, I, I can kind of understand this I understand who the people are and what they're doing and maybe even how the the micro tiny economy of of uh, Wallenstein works and so I, I think I think it helped me always as I went to bigger and bigger, kind of contexts that were more and more complicated I, I think I dove into them with the idea that I could I could figure them out. Uh, I wasn't sort of uh, intimidated by or cowed by it Now maybe I was a bit delusional and that I could figure things out but I, but I sometimes thought some of my, some of my classmates who came from who, who grew up in Manhattan um, when they were a child, sort of gave up on the idea I can understand how this whole system works because it's just too complicated uh, and maybe thought all I can do is understand uh, a little part of it Um, and so I I, I think the gift I was given by coming from that that environment was to say why not why not try to tackle the whole thing and see if you can make sense of that so uh, that that may be fanciful sort of Exposed rationalization, but but that's that's one thing that I, I think I I'm uh, I feel fortunate to have come from that uh, uh, small town environment.
2: Yeah, and it's I really get that every perspective is a gift as long as we understand that's <laughs> not the only perspective to have. And you would have been confronted with that right away.
3: <laughs> yes, that's yeah. right. No, no, it was. It, I I will say when I when I got to Harvard College in in you know Boston. Uh, one of the things that I didn't realize I'd miss until I got there was in Wallenstein when I wanted to be alone, uh, I would go for a walk and 800 yards or so I would be alone. I mean, really alone. And I could walk as far as I could possibly walk in Boston and I would never be, uh, alone. So I, so I, i missed that. So I had, a I I had a, an adjustment uh, uh, for, 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 for sure. <laughs>
2: So we're, we're here tonight to talk about your new book, When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with, with Economic Efficiency. Here, I've got it right here. And it's ultimately quite hopeful and practical book to address uh, some of the problems that a lot of us are starting to feel. What is that problem and, and why does it matter and why now?
3: Well, the 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 problem is, I think after after many years. So I, I focus on America, but I think it has implications elsewhere. I just focus on America as it's farthest down a path that I think is is sort of problematic on this. But for many many years, pursuing more efficiency in the in the economy uh, was a good thing. It actually helped. Raise productivity and, and help uh, uh, the United States and similarly Canada become a very wealthy, <clears throat> prosperous uh, society. But in the last 40 plus years, 40 to 50 years, in the last half century, I think we've been pushing efficiencies so hard that it's been having uh, counterproductive impacts on life on the economy on 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 uh, on businesses on the on the environment and so the book talks about what happens when you start taking something that's a good thing efficiency and pushing it to the extreme and you start to get extreme outcomes and there are many such extreme outcomes that we don't really like one is extremes of in, uh, income inequality one is extremes of domination of few firms in uh, in industries another thing is is more fragility in economic systems and environmental uh, systems and and all of that is is understandable as it turns out if you think about the the complex adaptive system the 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 world we live in is a very complex adaptive system uh, and when you put more and more pressure on it it starts to act in ways that we are we are now seeing it, it, it goes from being a balanced system. If we just take the economy for a moment and income, it goes from a balanced system where you have a large middle class and smaller tails of rich people and poor people. And you can have a nicely running economic system where that improves every year and you tax the rich richer more to help fund, fund uh, the chances of, the, of those in the poor tail to, to, to make a better life for, for themselves. <clears throat> that starts to break down because as you put more pressure on the economy from this obsessive pursuit of efficiency, what happens is that, that distribution changes, if you will. It's almost like taking your hand and putting squishing down the middle of the, of the bell curve and, it, and, and what you end up with is, a, is something that looks more like a ski slope with most people clustered at the low end, and then a long tail of extremely wealthy uh, people. And that, I think, is, is not an outcome that anybody wanted. Nobody designed the system to create that. It's happened. Uh, and it's happened, I think, by accident, but it's having dangerous consequences in that and, and all sorts of uh, other issues.
2: Yeah, and for sure, I mean, we see this in agriculture as well, um, and so we might actually need you to get that that headphone back into your ear if that's what works for you. Um, no thank you. We, um, in your book, you talk a lot about a proxy, like um, trying to measure measure just one thing, and that being the be all and end all. And, and that having some unintended consequences. Um, surely, like, we see that around rural areas, like, less and less neighbors every year. And um, and what that means for a community and quality of life. Uh, what are some other examples of some unintended consequences of this, you know, this race to efficiency?
3: Yes, you're, you're, you're pointing out, Mel, something that's, a, that's a, a very important sort of piece of this negative puzzle, which is which is it's not just pursuit of efficiency, but it's pursuit of efficiency as measured with certain proxies. Yeah. So I, I, I would use uh, wage rates as an example. So companies will say, well, I have to pursue efficiency in my labor costs by making sure I get the lowest possible wage rates uh, uh, that, I, that I can get. Mm. Um, now that may feel... Efficient, but there's a difference between low wage rates and efficiency, right? Um, that's just a proxy for efficiency, and in fact, right? If you are a retailer who keeps grinding down your your uh, your uh, wage rates, and you view efficiency as trying to minimize the number of labor hours, so you minimize the number of labor hours in your store, uh, uh, for for example. Um, then, and then what happens uh, is while you may think you're getting more efficient, you say, oh, my labor costs are down, what you find is customers stop showing up because it's a miserable environment in which to shop. You can't find anybody to help you. The people there are turning over very quickly because they don't earn a living wage, and so you say, I'm going to go somewhere else. So you may fool yourself into thinking you've got, become more efficient when in a, in a more broad sense, you're bef- becoming less effective. And in, in, in the, I'm sure people here like uh, you know, Costco too. It's, uh, uh, Costco is an example of a company that goes against that, right? They've said, they've said we're going to pay people extremely generously. Nobody in Costco makes less than 20 bucks an hour to start. Uh, which is way higher than retail uh, wages. And they say, they say, if they come to work, not worrying about putting uh, food on the table, if they come to work thinking there's a real future at, at, at uh, Costco, that we take care of them, they'll take care of our customers as well. And customers will love the experience and they'll flood back to our store. And so while it may not appear to be efficient, to those people who measure efficiencies with these inaccurate proxies it ends up being way more effective and I know from talking to you before you worry about proxies that that uh, people use in the in the uh, farming community sometimes that actually are bad for long-term effectiveness
2: yeah like when we if we're just measuring bushels per acre and over time if, if that's our only proxy if that's if that's what we're looking for um we're eroding the soil and over time eroding the ability of the soil to make bushels per acre so so even just changing some of those proxies um even you know profit per acre (laughs) surprise surprise would be a would be a different one or or the improvement of the soil but um
3: yeah, so that's the same as I mean the, the analogy I think is so so good there. That's the same as eroding your your customers' belief in you as a good destination to shop, right? Yeah. So you might say in year one it works. Oh hooray, it worked. Uh, we got our labor costs down, so we put put a few more dollars to the bottom line because the customers hadn't figured it out yet. It, you know, it takes customers a little while. But then next year you say, gosh, you know our labor costs are still down, but our top line you know our sales are down and and the size of the the basket how much they buy when they're in the store is 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 down that would be the moral equivalent of saying wow why didn't we grow as many bushels uh uh, this year and and they would you know send out an expert and they'd say well you know that your your soil is producing as many bushels as it can because you've you've abused it so i i I think there's a I, from from what I can tell, there's a real parallel of pushing efficiency and these imperfect proxies for efficiency. And again, I'm not against the idea of proxies. You have to have some way of measuring something. But the minute you start to think the proxy is the thing, right? So labor hours or, or, or wage rates equal efficiency, you're in trouble. If you say, well, it's one... Measure of e- efficiency, but it's not—it's it, not efficiency in and of itself. That's—that's that's what you—that's what you've got to think. So I don't mind people saying I would like to get bushels per acre out. Uh, you yes. know, that—that's—that's—that's that's, that's sensible. But if you say that is the only way to think about it, um, will will lead you to do things that get that to be higher in the short term and perhaps disastrously lower in the long term
2: right like it totally undermines the way of measuring success totally undermines the outcome of success but the one of the biggest issues we have in agriculture is that there is we don't have quarterly reports on how we're doing like the soil is eroded over a generation and that's and it's it's almost invisible too it's not like a, a, a report you can share with your <laughs> with your shareholders.
3: Um, yeah, no, it's 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 tricky. I, I mean, a great yeah. a great uh, scholar who wrote a a great book a long time ago, Peter Sangi wrote a book called The Fifth Discipline and said, you know systems become more complex and difficult to understand uh, when there is greater distance between cause and effect. Mm. Um, and that distance can be geographic distance, but it can be time and what you're describing is a long gap between cause things you're doing to the soil today and effect, uh, the, the impact on this, on the soil. And I think in, 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 in situations like that, it's, 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 it's just important to be, to be, I think careful and conservative, right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not unlike, you know brushing your teeth you know when you're a kid and your mom or your dad is on you about brushing your teeth I mean I think you know you could say well you know kind of why it doesn't really matter uh, you know uh my teeth are going to look the same tomorrow as they are they they look today uh but what they instill in you is this is this is this notion that you know what there's, there's a gap between the time you stop brushing your teeth and when, when you're, you get cavities and your teeth fall out, but uh, it's coming. And so to have, to have a sense of it's a system and, and I think of brushing teeth as, as buying insurance, right? Yeah. Do you actually think your house is going to burn down, right? No, but you do have to ask the question, how disastrous would it be if my house burns down? And the approach you take to that is buying insurance, which if all goes well, you could say after the fact I wasted all that money, right? Because your house never burnt, burnt down. Uh, but but uh, you want to buy that insurance. I think on things where there's a, a big gap between cause and effect, I, I'd, I'd buy insurance. I'd say... By the time we feel the effect, it's going to be too late. In such a situation, I'd say I'll buy some insurance against that. And I think the insurance that's wise to buy in that, in, in, in that sense. So the insurance that Costco is buying is I want customers to love us 10 years from now
1: mm-hmm. and to
3: have a Costco habit. Where they say, whenever I want to buy something, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Costco, and so my insurance is having excess staff and staff who are paid more than what we could pay them. I think what you're saying is exactly the same. Uh, you'd want a farmer to buy insurance, even though they might not see the soil decline next year. Uh, it may go off the edge and into precipitous decline whatever 5 years or 7 years uh, uh, from now so buy a little insurance
1: mm-hmm. the
3: insurance is spend a little resources now <clears throat> on protecting the soil for that for that later later date it's uh, uh, it's at least that, that's the way i think about it.
2: that no that's a that's a great way to think about it obviously when we think about insurance we first think about crop insurance but this is this is different crop insurance is actually maintaining this um this drive for bushels per acre because it's it's a production
3: insurance okay Okay. i didn't know i didn't know that was a term of art well we don't have soil soil insurance
2: but this would be another issue is okay um some farmers are putting that money towards their soil is, is putting that investment of time and resources towards it, but others aren't. So in a sense, some are investing in insurance and others aren't. But you're all in the same system together.
3: Yeah, that's. I mean that that's a that's of course a tricky a tricky situation. If we I mean if we get back to <laughs> get back to houses burning down, of course, yeah. of course because because. one house burning down can cause other houses to uh uh, to burn down that's one of the reasons why we have regulations and that's why that's why in toronto after after there was a fire that burnt all the wooden houses down they said you have to make them out of out of uh brick (laughs) um and And, so so,
2: mandatory insurance yes
3: Yeah. yeah and and so and so i i i i i do think they're they're is a role i mean i'm not I, i'm not and i don't think many country people <laughs> are in for a giant giant invasive role invasive role of, of of government but i i think there are there are uh times when when there are these externalities these system dynamics impacts that that uh, uh that, that that saying th- this is how we've got to got got to take care of our our uh, our land uh because when we didn't you know way back when we had the dust pole, right uh that, I know that's ancient history now but it had a devastating impact on vast swaths of the of the of the west uh and you know that that kind of thing is is the kind of thing you got to be uh careful about
2: yeah thanks Mm-hmm. it's it's always great to just get a, a new perspective i know we, we we think a lot about these issues but um really appreciate your perspectives and i don't want to d- dwell too much on the problems as well because your your book is ultimately very hopeful um approximately 57 percent of the book was, <laughs> was uh set to um to the solutions and and that they are practical and they're happening right now so what is it that you're seeing that that makes you hopeful
3: well, you know, as 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 you know, because you you you've read the book, what I what I said is I I have eighteen eighteen recommendations in the book, and all of them are things that are being done, have been done, uh, or are being done elsewhere that have succeeded. So I'm hopeful because. There are solutions, I think, to all the problems that I identify in the book. Not all the problems of the world; I identify a subset in the book, but <laughs> that that are already in in practice, and we just need to do uh, to do more of them. Um, <clears throat> you know, you know, one of the things I talk about is 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 government uh, uh, kind of legislation, and 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 what I argue is in this sort of complex adaptive system where it's really hard to figure out when you. Pull a given lever what actually will will uh, happen i mean economists and policymakers are way more confident than they should be they're like sure that if we do this you know will this will happen and, and it rarely does given that you know we should put uh, a a requirement for review and revision into every legislative move we we make Every new bill should have have a. In five years, we're going to review this and and revise it. Now, some people who I say that to say, oh, that would be crazy. You can't you can't uh, uh, do that. Um, but Canadians, who know the banking system, don't say that because the Canadian the, the Bank Act are omnibus legislation that controls financial services. And it's a bigger and more important bill than any single bill in the United States. So, so we have one one kind of giant uh, one. The, okay. <laughs> the wise people who put that in place in 1871, right? Four years after we became a country, uh, put in a mandatory review and revision. Every 10 years, you have to review seriously and revise the Bank Act to keep up with what's been happening in the in the industry. And it worked so well and was thought so positively, it was changed to five-year period in 1992. So anybody who, and, and, and you know, as you may recall, right, a bunch of banks either were going to go absolutely belly up or have gigantic multi-billion dollar bailouts in the U.S., no bailouts in Canada, no financial distress of banks in Canada. What's one of the reasons, I'm sure there are many, but one of the reasons is our bank act was less than five years old at, 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 the, at the time of the crisis, right? because it's revised every five years. Not so in the United States, ancient, ancient old legislation uh, controlling banking. So mm. I don't wanna to be told by anybody, right? No, you couldn't do that. That's unwieldy, that, that doesn't work not it works not and not with something little something gigantic and central in the way of legislation so it you know it's things like that or or you know uh for a business business just don't treat slack as the enemy to get rid of mm-hmm. and costco provides a perfect example probably now the most successful right now today's retailer in america uh has said we we will Put slack into the system. They have the same algorithms as everybody else that says, given the likely traffic flow, here's how many labor hours you need on the store floor, here's how many cashiers you need. Costco literally just takes those numbers and throws in a slush factor.
2: Mm.
3: Let's say at 10% or let's say at 15%. And like, what? What are you doing? You're wasting money. No. We just want to make sure if Mel comes in and Mel's looking for something, Mel's going to find it. I'm going to get (laughs) it. She's going to put it in her cart and she's going to pay for it. And then, and then we're going to be going to be better off and she's going to be better off because she doesn't have to go to some other store after that because she couldn't find it at, at her, uh, her Costco. So, Everything that's that needs to be done is being done somewhere already and successfully. We just need to see these things spread to be more ubiquitous, I think, to reverse the the problems we've we've had. And And again, you know you're the expert. I'm not the expert on on uh, on uh, on farming, uh, but uh, you know you, there's lots of farmers uh, who are who are doing. Uh, kind of what you would advocate in their in their fields i think you would argue it's just not enough and so if we had had more uh then then uh then we'd have solved the problem so a lot of these things just need more more players to adopt what is already succeeding it's not they don't have to take some big chance on something that's never been tried before they just have to they just have to Dive in and, and, uh, and join the band of people who are succeeding.
0: Thanks for listening to Food Farm Talk on 93.3 FM CFRU in Guelph or on podcast. Please check our podcast show notes and social media for links to Roger Martin's work, the Midwest Cover Crop Council, and Soils at Guelph at the University of Guelph. A special thanks to Cam Ogilvie of Soils at Guelph for making these audio files available from this lecture. Please tune in again for another topical episode. (laughs)